Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug use, murder, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Gustavo Tarin Chavez had a reputation as one of the most ruthless criminals in Juarez, Mexico. If a cartel boss wanted someone to disappear, Tarin was happy to make it happen. He was willing to kill anyone for any reason, even his own brother Alfredo, who he gunned down after a public argument in the middle of the street. When a shocked witness asked, how can you kill your own brother? Tarin shot him too. Tarin's killer instincts made him a valuable asset for the Juarez cartel. On that night in the mid 90s, his hard work was rewarded with an invite to a party with all the cartel's superiors. As he sipped his drink, Tarin noticed a man coming towards him. He looked unremarkable nothing to make him stand out from the crowd. But Tarin recognized him immediately. It was El Azul, one of the closest advisors to the cartel's leaders. Tarin tensed as the kingpin approached. But when El Azul spoke, his voice was soft. He gently told Tarin, try not to pull your trigger finger so much. This business doesn't do well when so many lives go to waste. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. This is our second episode on Juan Jose Asparagoza Moreno, the Mexican drug lord known as El Azul. This week, we'll be talking about El Azul's life after he was released from prison in 1992 and how he earned the title of peacemaker despite engineering one of the bloodiest gang wars in Mexican history. You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the show, one of the best ways to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. El Azul began trafficking marijuana in the late 1960s when he was about 20 years old. In the mid-1970s, he joined the Guadalajara Cartel, a criminal organization that held a near monopoly on the Mexican drug trade throughout the 70s and 80s. The Guadalajara Cartel rose to power in part due to its close ties with Mexican police and government officials. But those ties were strained after the cartel carried out the murder of a Mexican-American DEA agent in 1985. Under intense pressure from the U.S., the Guadalajara cartel's two foremost leaders, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo and Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, were arrested for the murder and sentenced to life in prison. Even though he couldn't be directly connected to the murder, the police also brought in 36-year-old El Azul, who was sentenced to seven years for drug trafficking. With all the group's leaders behind bars, the Guadalajara cartel officially split apart. From behind bars, El Azul helped Felix Gallardo divide up the group's territories and assign new leaders to control each region. One of the most valuable territories was the border city of Juarez, Chihuahua, just south of El Paso, Texas. This territory was bequeathed to Amado Carrillo Fuentes, whose fleet of drug-smuggling jets earned him the nickname Lord of the Skies. Carrillo Fuentes was the nephew of Guadalajara cartel leader Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, but he hadn't worked with his uncle in Guadalajara. Reportedly, Carrillo Fuentes didn't get along with his uncle's protege, Rafael Caro Quintero, so he was sent to work in the rural border town of Oinaga, 250 miles southeast of Juarez. Despite his exile, Carrillo Fuentes quickly established himself as a visionary of the drug trade, thanks to the partnerships he cultivated with Colombian cocaine suppliers. After the mass arrests of the cartel's old guard in the late 1980s, Amado Carrillo Fuentes rose to prominence as the leader of what became known as the Juarez Cartel. Carrillo Fuentes recruited many capable lieutenants to assist him. He enlisted the violent Beltran Leva brothers to act as the cartel's enforcers. Three of these five brothers, Arturo, Alfredo, and Hector, were known as Los Tres Caballeros, the Three Gentlemen. Carrillo Fuentes also allied with Ismael Elmayo Zimbada, an independent trafficker known for his shrewd insight into politics and finances. One very important piece of the puzzle was still missing. The Lord of the Skies needed a great negotiator to handle communications with his Colombian suppliers. When 42-year-old El Azul was released from prison in 1992, Carrillo Fuentes trusted this role to him. El Azul didn't mind playing second-in-command to a younger, newer name. He had learned that the man in charge often ended up in prison or dead. It was safer to be the man behind the man. And the man he was now serving was already a legend within the drug world. 
As a boy, Amado Carrillo Fuentes had once dreamed of becoming a pilot. As a drug lord, he commanded a fleet of Boeing 727s and set up an airstrip in the middle of the Chihuahuan Desert. From there, he moved dozens of clandestine air shipments every night, with each plane carrying as much as 20 tons of cocaine. El Azul once joked, there are so many planes coming into Mexico from Colombia that it looks like an invasion. As he had done for the Guadalajara cartel, El Azul kept the Juarez cartel's business running smoothly with well-placed bribes to politicians, police officers, and military generals. When he encountered law enforcement officers who weren't in his pocket, El Azul seemed to have the ability to vanish like a ghost. He avoided flashy clothing, jewelry, and extravagance. While many of his contemporaries were known for their bellicose personalities, El Azul met everyone, friends and enemies alike, with the same calm and friendly demeanor. A high-ranking Mexican federal prosecutor admitted that he had once bumped into a soft-spoken middle-aged man at a restaurant while waiting for a table. They exchanged a polite greeting, and the middle-aged man excused himself and left the restaurant. The prosecutor didn't realize he had just brushed up against one of the country's most powerful drug lords until a few minutes later, when his security detail rushed in and whispered that they'd just seen the notorious El Azul leave the restaurant. They probably wouldn't have recognized him either if it wasn't for the truckload of armed bodyguards that arrived to whisk him away. El Azul managed to stay under the radar despite the enormous amount of money and power the Juarez cartel accumulated in the 1990s. Carrillo Fuentes was one of the world's richest smugglers at the time. Some estimate that his organization controlled half of all narcotics trafficking through Mexico. This vast empire earned Carrillo Fuentes a net worth of around $25 billion. He used his wealth to build a massive Taj Mahal-esque mansion in the desert, which he called the Palace of a Thousand and One Nights. El Azul was more discreet with his wealth. He wasn't opposed to spending money, but instead of constructing grand desert palaces, he sent his children to expensive private universities in Europe and North America. He also invested in residential developments, shopping malls, and office parks, slowly amassing properties all over Mexico and the United States. He then used these legitimate enterprises to launder money from his more illicit activities. Notably, none of these properties were listed in his own name. Family members, including his wife, his mother-in-law, and his adult children, all lent their signatures to the contracts to make it more difficult to tie the legitimate business back to his criminal activities. El Azul's riches multiplied during his time with the Juarez cartel, but the hazards of the drug trade were multiplying as well. During the days of the Guadalajara cartel, there'd been very little violence between gangs, since one organization controlled nearly all the nation's drug trafficking. But without a central leader holding them together, the old cartel's factions degenerated into rivalry and warfare. In the early 1990s, El Azul was concerned about the tensions rising between the Juarez cartel 
and their major rival, the Gulf Cartel, which operated on the opposite side of the country, along the Gulf Coast. The days of the Guadalajara Cartel's monopoly were over, but El Azul hoped he could restore some of the peace and unity the drug barons all remembered. In 1993, El Azul convinced a dozen rival gang leaders from both the Pacific and Gulf Coasts to sit together at a table. The purpose of the meeting was to reduce tensions between the rivals, to set up a system of clear and defined rules of operation, and to carve out a fair arrangement for each group to make deals with suppliers in Colombia, Peru, and Bolivia. El Azul acted as a mediator for the Capos as they worked out an agreement. The deal was called La Paz del Norte, the Peace of the North. Once the details were hammered out, the resolution solidified El Azul's reputation as the peacemaker among kingpins. As adept as he was at forging deals, El Azul liked to go a step further in creating bonds between rivals, or allies that might someday turn into rivals. He strengthened the inner circle of the Juarez cartel by forming blood ties among his contemporaries. Sometime in the mid-90s, he became godfather to Amado Carrillo Fuente's son. In 1995, El Azul also approved the marriage of his own 22-year-old son, Juan José Espargosa Manzón, to Gloria Beltran Leva, the youngest sister of the cartel's infamous enforcers, the Beltran Leva brothers. As he managed the cartel's interpersonal relationships, El Azul also convinced Carrillo Fuentes to set aside his rivalry with another rising star of the underworld, Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. El Chapo had once worked as a low-ranking gunman for the Guadalajara cartel, and after the group disbanded, he joined forces with the Juarez cartel. But the Lord of the Skies thought El Chapo's reckless behavior was bringing too much unwanted attention to their operation. El Chapo spent most of the 90s serving a prison sentence for drug trafficking and his involvement in the murder of a Catholic cardinal who had been caught in the crossfire of one of his shootouts. Carrillo Fuentes would have been happier to see El Chapo dead. But El Azul thought killing the promising young drug lord would be a waste of talent. And at least as long as he was in prison, his rash tendencies were somewhat contained. It was a tough sell, but El Azul convinced Carrillo Fuentes to keep El Chapo alive. It was a decision he wouldn't live long enough to regret. The Lord of the Skies had become a notorious figure in his own right by the mid-1990s, he was one of the top targets of the FBI and made regular appearances on the Bureau's most wanted list. The Mexican government had issued multiple warrants for his arrest. Law enforcement even tried to capture Carrillo Fuentes at his sister's wedding. But the kingpin was tipped off and managed to escape 20 minutes before the officers arrived. Feeling the heat of his pursuers, Carrillo Fuentes decided to undergo plastic surgery to disguise his appearance in July of 1997. It would have been a brilliant move if it had worked. Complications occurred during the procedure, most likely because years of casual cocaine use had weakened the drug lord's heart. 
The Lord of the Skies reportedly died on the operating table at only 40 years old. The key word is reportedly. Not everyone believes the unrecognizable body flaunted at Carrillo Fuente's open casket funeral was actually the Lord of the Skies. Some say he just wanted to quit while he was on top, and he used the plastic surgery story to fake his death and retire in Cuba. Alive or dead, Carrillo Fuentes was gone for good, and his exit left a void at the top of the Juarez cartel. Disputes among his hopeful successors began immediately. Once again, El Azul quietly put his negotiation skills to use. He initially proposed to have a council of leaders at the head of the cartel instead of just one capo. He envisioned the council operating like a board of directors at a corporation. When that proposal failed to take off, El Azul threw his support behind Amado Carrillo's brother, Vicente. Out of respect for his late brother, the Juarez lieutenants accepted Vicente's leadership without violence. The Beltran Leva brothers remained particularly loyal to their new leader. But most of the lieutenants within the Juarez cartel didn't really believe Vicente had the skills to oversee Mexico's most powerful cartel. He was seen as weak and unreliable. This was possibly because Vicente didn't just traffic drugs. He was an addict himself. Under his leadership, the Juarez cartel survived but its power and influence plummeted. From El Azul's perspective, history was repeating itself. He had maneuvered himself to the heights of power, only to see his organization flounder after a loss in leadership. It was time for him to make a decision about his own future with the Juarez Cartel. We'll discuss his choice when we return. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now, back to the story. After Amado Carrillo Fuente's death in 1997, the Juarez cartel's power started to wane. There was an opening for a new organization to step in as the dominant crime syndicate in Mexico. Carrillo Fuente's old rival, Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, sensed it was his time to shine. On January 19, 2001, El Chapo went missing from Puente Grande Maximum Security Prison, where he was serving time for murder. The official story is that El Chapo escaped by hiding in a laundry cart. However, witnesses on the scene say he was escorted out of prison dressed as a guard after his associates paid a multi-million dollar bribe to the highest levels of government. However El Chapo managed his break from prison, he was met with open arms by Juarez Cartel Lieutenant Ismael El Mayo Zambada. El Mayo had hoped to take over the cartel after Carrillo Fuente's death, but when his less adept brother Vicente became the boss instead, 
El Mayo felt it was time to move on. Working together, El Mayo and El Chapo believed they had enough clout to surpass the Juarez cartel and rule the Mexican underworld themselves. They set up their home base in Sinaloa, calling their new group the Sinaloa Cartel. Having spent over three decades in the narcotics trade, El Azul could already sense which side would come out the winner. When El Chapo and El Mayo established their rival group, El Azul decided to jump ship and join them. But the careful negotiator didn't completely cut off ties with the Juarez cartel. El Azul maintained good relations with the Beltran Leva brothers. After all, their youngest sister was his daughter-in-law. He brokered an alliance between the two cartels, which they called the Federation. Even as the power structures changed, El Azul worked to keep the ties between the Federation cordial. They needed to be in the strongest position possible to prepare for trouble ahead. Back in 1993, El Azul had arranged a peace agreement between the Juarez Cartel and the Gulf Cartel. It was the right decision at the time, but a decade later, circumstances had changed. A new wing of the Gulf Cartel had formed. They call themselves Los Zetas, and they were a force to be reckoned with. Los Zetas emerged in 1999 as a band of former Mexican military members who turned to the drug trade. They stood apart from other cartels because of their cult-like sense of brotherhood and fanatical devotion to their leader, Arturo Guzman de Sena, also known as Z1. They call themselves Los Zetas because nothing comes after Z. Los Zetas branded themselves as cold-blooded killing machines. They carried weapons designed for warfare, and with their military background, they knew how to use them. El Azul saw Los Zetas as an immediate threat. As a negotiator, he often had to appeal to his enemy's sense of reason and justice. Los Zetas didn't seem to care about either of those things. They didn't even care about their own lives. They treated every order as if it might turn into a potential kamikaze operation. A popular folk song about the group goes, We are 20 Zetas, united like family. We 20 are the mighty, with suicide diplomas. We know that in every mission, we could die. For a man like El Azul, who avoided confrontation at all costs and held an intense secret fear of death, Losetta's creed must have been highly disturbing. In 2002, fearing Losetta's rise, El Azul called together members of the Juarez and Sinaloa cartels for a meeting in Monterrey. With El Chapo, El Mayo, the Beltran Leva brothers, and Vicente Carrillo Fuentes seated around him, El Azul told the group that he wanted to eradicate the Gulf Coast Losetta's. It was a bold suggestion. Gang violence was commonplace, but the idea of eliminating an entire rival cartel went beyond the usual scope of the bloodshed. But El Azul was persuasive. He turned on his notorious charm and convinced the Federation that Los Zetas couldn't be reasoned with. The faction had to be taken out completely for everyone's safety. El Azul had spent over three decades working to ease tensions among drug lords. But
But with that meeting, the 53-year-old peacemaker set into motion one of the most brutal gang wars in Mexican history. In November 2002, Loseta's leader, Arturo Guzman de Sena, a.k.a. Z1, was drinking and snorting cocaine at a fast food restaurant in Matamoros. A local witness tipped the Mexican army off to Z1's location, and as he exited the restaurant, he was surrounded by soldiers. Z1 was shot and killed in the confrontation. His number two, Heriberto Lazcano, also known as the Executioner, stepped in as the new leader of Los Zetas. He suspected that Z1's execution was engineered by the Juarez Sinaloa Federation. His suspicions deepened when two weeks after Z1's death, the Federation sent him a warning note. It read, you have one week to vacate the territory from Reynosa to Nuevo Laredo. The war had begun but Lascano had no intention of backing down from the battle. At the dawn of 2003, Loseta set up military-style camps to train hundreds of new recruits. They spread into Central American countries like Guatemala, where weaker government infrastructure meant they faced less resistance from authorities. There, they enlisted members from an elite Guatemalan army unit called the Caibiles, to train their militia. Los Zetas didn't have the same government connections and police protection in Mexico as the Sinaloa cartel, but they had no trouble recruiting new members to their cause. They projected an alluring sense of morale and brothership that inspired angry young men all over the country. For the next several years, the gangs on the two coasts sent messages to each other through kidnappings and murders. Corpses were found tortured, beheaded, and dismembered. Both sides experienced thousands of casualties each year. The violence wasn't limited to drug dealers and their bosses. Wives, children, and even random civilians were caught up in the attacks. To El Azul, a man who reportedly hated violence, the conflict was becoming a nightmare. In 2002, El Azul had masterminded the war against Los Zetas. But by 2007, after five years and thousands of deaths with no end in sight, he decided to call for a truce. He reached out to Los Zetas leader, Heriberto Lascano, to discuss a new pact, a resurrection of La Paz del Norte. Lascano refused El Azul's proposal. His simple response was, will never make a pact with them. The Juarez cartel's Beltran Leva brothers took matters into their own hands and kidnapped Lascano's cousin for leverage. But El Azul personally intervened and arranged for the cousin's safe return. It was a gesture of goodwill and it worked. In June of 2007, a meeting took place between the leaders of the Gulf and Pacific Coast cartels Everyone was armed. Everyone was on edge. And then El Chapo walked in. Lascano tensed up as El Chapo approached him. El Chapo looked the handsome young Losetas leader up and down and said, if I was queer, I'd have screwed you already. It was a coarse but effective icebreaker, 
the entire room erupted in laughter. With the tensions eased, the two sides got to work hammering out an agreement, known as the Valle Hermosa Pact, to carve out their respective territories and stop the violence. The Gulf Coast would keep their territories along the East Coast, Tamaulipas, Coahuila, Veracruz, Tabasco, Campeche, and Quintana Roo. The Federation would retain the Northwest states of Sonora, Sinaloa, Durango, Chihuahua, Nayarit, Jalisco, Guerrero, Guanajuato, Querétaro, and Oaxaca. The two groups also agreed that they would both contribute funds to bribe state officials so that both groups could enjoy protection from government authorities. The meeting was followed by a lavish party to celebrate the new accord. As impressive as it was that El Azul managed to get these kingpins in the same room for the treaty, the peace ultimately didn't last. War came too naturally to these violent men. Turf feuds between the Sinaloa and Los Zetas cartels have continued to cause waves of violence even into 2019. Internal strife within the Federation also cropped up. El Chapo didn't like the Beltran Leva brothers because he felt they were more loyal to the Juarez cartel leader, Vicente Carrillo Fuentes, than they were to him. The distrust was mutual. In fact, the brutal Beltran Leva brothers found that they actually preferred the warlike Zetas to the slippery El Chapo. As the alliance between the Juarez and Sinaloa cartels fell apart, El Azul was caught in the middle. He had ties to both groups, but ultimately he sided with El Chapo. It's difficult to dispute the logic of his choice. The Sinaloa cartel had achieved a legendary status in the narcotics world and became an internationally renowned crime organization. El Chapo had personally earned most of the media headlines. Forbes called him the most powerful drug lord in the world, and the Chicago Crime Commission labeled him public enemy number one. But El Chapo never would have risen to this status without the help of his partners, El Azul and Ismael El Mayo Zambada. Under the leadership of these three men, the Sinaloa cartel became the single most active supplier of drugs to the United States. The Sinaloa cartel, which is still active today, has sent hundreds of tons of drug shipments into cities like Atlanta, Houston, Chicago, and Los Angeles. They're responsible for flooding U.S. streets with previously unseen quantities of heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine. El Azul enjoyed the success of the Sinaloa cartel, but not the attention it brought. By always working in the shadows behind leaders like Amado Carrillo Fuentes and El Chapo, El Azul had been able to keep a target off his back. But by the 2000s, he was approaching his 60s, and he'd already outlasted nearly all of his partners. He knew his discretion couldn't hide him forever. When we return, we'll talk about how the U.S. government finally began to take notice of the aging kingpin. Now, back to the story. For decades, Juan José Esparagoza Moreno served as a trusted advisor within three different drug trafficking syndicates, 
orchestrating peace treaties among rival kingpins. The drug lord known as El Azul didn't command as much attention as some of his more boisterous associates, but eventually American law enforcement officials began to notice the connections between the millions of dollars in drug money flowing out of the United States and El Azul's booming business network in Mexico. In 2000, the United States Congress passed the Foreign Narcotics Kingpin Designation Act. The act allowed the Treasury Department to freeze assets held by identified drug traffickers within the United States jurisdiction. The act also prohibited any U.S. citizen or corporation from doing business with the designated kingpins. Thanks to this law, the U.S. government didn't have to waste manpower trying to ferret out drug lords and place them under arrest. They could weaken criminal organizations by choking off their funding. In 2003, the Treasury Department identified 54-year-old El Azul as a major drug trafficker under the Kingpin Act. That same year, a grand jury in Houston, Texas, issued an indictment against El Azul, charging him with the importation of a controlled substance, among other crimes. Around the same time, El Azul was included in Mexico's list of most wanted drug traffickers, with a $2 million reward for information leading to his capture. The U.S. Department of State also issued a $5 million reward for information leading to his arrest. But despite these bounties on his head, El Azul kept his freedom. The kingpin's many connections to federal police officers and state representatives were his most valuable assets. He avoided capture by sticking to regions where he enjoyed the most protection. El Azul reportedly had a home built in Morelos, a region in central Mexico, where it's rumored that his daughter Nadia was dating the governor. Still, the U.S. government kept up the pressure. In 2012, the U.S. Treasury Department expanded its sanctions against El Azul and his family, targeting his two wives and four of his children, all of whom held property on his behalf. El Azul's family and the various shell companies they operated were prohibited from doing any business in the U.S. Initially, this wasn't a huge blow, until the Mexican government followed the United States' lead. In 2013, the Mexican Ministry of Finance froze El Azul's known bank accounts and prohibited him or his family from opening any new ones. El Azul tried to work around these sanctions and frozen assets. He directed his wife, Ofelia Monzon, to transfer funds to her mother. But U.S. authorities caught wind of this scheme, and they soon added Ofelia's mother to their sanctions list as well. However, the family had other advantages. El Azul's daughter, Nadia, who was described as beautiful and elegant, got the attention of an executive at Banco del Bajío in León, Guanajuato. The executive personally arranged for her to deposit a cashier's check of over 27 million pesos, the equivalent of about $1.5 million, into a new account. By the time investigators uncovered the new account, the money had already been transferred to El Azul's various entities throughout Mexico. El Azul managed to keep afloat with the help of his family. But within his criminal family, 
the Sinaloa cartel, troubles deepened. Since his 2001 prison break, El Chapo had remained free thanks to his bribes to authorities and his remote compounds in the Sierra Madre Mountains. But the military managed to arrest several members of El Chapo's security team in February of 2014, and the arrested bodyguards tipped them off to the kingpin's whereabouts. The authorities chased El Chapo to his beachfront property in Mazatlan and finally apprehended him on February 22, 2014. He would soon face extradition and trial in the United States. It seemed only a matter of time before El Azul would meet the same fate. But once again, he managed to evade the law, though he didn't live to gloat about it. On June 8, 2014, a Sinaloa newspaper reported that Juan Jose Esparagoza Moreno had died. He was 65 years old. The details were murky. El Azul's family issued a statement that he had gotten into a car accident in Guadalajara. His back was injured, and he was admitted to a hospital for treatment, where doctors advised him to remain on bed rest. The well-known hypochondriac apparently ignored their advice. As he got up and tried to leave his hospital room, he suffered a heart attack and died instantly. However, El Azul's family never produced a body to prove his death. They claim to have cremated his remains. No hospital has produced any records indicating that a man matching El Azul's description died in their care. In fact, the only evidence to suggest El Azul was even admitted to a hospital in the first place is a grainy security tape showing a man with a similar appearance entering an emergency room in Zapopan, Jalisco on June 8, 2014, the same day El Azul's death was reported in the papers. Like Amado Carrillo Fuentes before him, some speculated that El Azul had faked his death to retire in peace. Whether he was really dead or not, El Azul's family mourned publicly. They held three funeral masses for their patriarch and built an extravagant mausoleum in a cemetery outside Culiacan, the capital of Sinaloa. But because of the scant evidence, the Mexican government cannot officially confirm that El Azul is dead. If the great peacemaker is still alive, hoping that the public will move on and forget about him, he may be disappointed. El Chapo's trial in America, which began in November of 2018 and concluded in February 2019, prompted a circus of media coverage focused on the kingpin and his associates. Trial testimony repeatedly referred to the late El Azul. The popular Netflix show Narcos Mexico also premiered in November of 2018. It covers the rise of the Guadalajara cartel, with actor Fermin Martinez playing the role of El Azul. More than four years after his supposed death, journalists in Mexico continue to report on the mysterious exit of El Azul. Curiosity and rumors about the kingpin show no signs of settling down. The U.S. government hasn't forgotten him either. Sanctions remain in place against El Azul's family and businesses, and he remains on the FBI's most wanted list. 
just in case he ever does decide to return from the dead. The Sinaloa cartel remains one of the most powerful criminal organizations in the world. Without experienced leaders like El Chapo and El Azul at the helm, the cartel may be in for a rocky road ahead. But as always, new kingpins are already rising to fill the shoes of their mentors. El Azul's oldest son, Juan José Esparagoza Manzón, has continued his father's legacy. He's been accused by the Mexican government of laundering money and managing finances for the Sinaloa cartel. Reports have described Manzón as the cartel's ranking leader in Baja, Mexico. Despite their similarities, he apparently does not share his father's propensity for peacemaking. Authorities have connected Esparagoza Monzon to deadly internal feuds among factions of the Sinaloa cartel. He's been linked to a recent upswing in murders and violence in the border cities of Tijuana and Mexicali. In January 2017, Esparagoza Monzon was arrested by Mexican police in the capital of Jalisco, Mexico. During his arrest, police discovered three handguns in his car, along with two kilos of cocaine. He was sent to a detention center while the authorities began the process of extraditing him to the United States. While Esparagoza Monzon was in detention, newspapers reported on the extravagant privileges he enjoyed behind bars. He may not have built a prison nightclub, as his father had, but he reportedly had access to cocaine and marijuana, kept a phone and a plasma TV in his cell, and was allowed conjugal visits with sex workers. This was all during his mere 56 days in prison. On March 16, 2017, Esparagoza Monzon was present for morning roll call. But by noon, authorities discovered that he and four other prisoners associated with the Sinaloa cartel had disappeared. Prison officials sounded the alarm and launched a manhunt for the escaped inmates. They searched the area for hours, but found no trace of the missing men. Journalists and government officials criticized the event as just one in a string of chronic security lapses at the prison. At present, Juan José Esparagoza Manzón remains at large. Perhaps he and his father are enjoying retirement together, relaxing on a beach in some obscure town on the Pacific coast of Mexico. They may be playing cards and sipping cognac, relying on their countless underworld connections to keep their secrets safe and their drug money flowing. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. 
Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Christina Pamies and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.